Blog Talk Radio. You are listening to Countdown to Kickoff. I am your host, Anthony Denmark, Denmark Life and Country, a.k.a. Copenhagen, a.k.a. Denny. And this episode is brought to you by EatDrinkSleepSports.com. And since sports never stop, since sports never sleep, that means we always have something to talk about. And since Mason's back, heck, I'm back, you're back, let's go ahead and discuss the latest happenings in the world of college sports. Let's get it. And welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome back to Countdown to Kickoff. I'm your host, the one and only Anthony Denmark, Denmark like the country. And like the show started off saying, since sports never stops, since sports never sleep, that means we always have something to talk about in college football. Although stadiums at this particular point are empty, there's no tailgating going on right now, we do know that there's a lot of action to report on. And since I consider it my duty, my calling, let's go ahead and get to work. Now, on tonight's show, we have a lot of things that we're going to try to pack into the show. We're going to have a guest come on that's going to talk to us about the USC Trojans. Are the Trojans back? Talk specifically about some of those Trojans who will be participating in the NFL Combine. Of course, we're also going to talk about the new king of California, the new golden boy quarterback. Of course, we're talking about Sam Darnold, who, of course, at this particular point, is Bravado's odds-on favorite right now to win the Heisman. We're going to talk about the recruiting class because we do know that Dory Jackson, Juju Smith Jr., Juju Smith, Rooster, we do know that the offensive line, Banner, Mamba, Wheeler, are all gone. But we also do know in places like at USD, they never replace, they always reload. So we want to try to get a chance to familiarize ourselves the next batch of stars who signed on the dotted line only a few months ago. In addition to that, and continuing with this pattern, we're going to talk about USC, of course. I, for one, found myself thinking about the Rose Bowl and thinking about the significance of that game, not just for the sake of it being an awesome game, but also in thinking about the two participants that played in that game, of course, USC being one and Penn State being the other and talking about how both of those programs had to battle back, literally, from scandals. One, of course, dealing with Reggie Bush. The other one, of course, dealing with Sandusky. But have now found themselves back on the national stage. Both quarterbacks find themselves in Heisman talk. Both teams, of course, are now being talked to not only win their conference, but also to contend for national championships. Of course, getting to that particular point was a very long road. In the case of USC, it took three coaches. And in the case of Penn State, it took two coaches. But how did they get there? What is their blueprint? And can other programs currently finding themselves in trouble, i.e. Ole Miss, i.e. Baylor, follow that similar blueprint and find themselves reemerging from the shadows and find themselves in their rightful place atop their conference, atop their division, 
and possibly even being able to not only dream of winning 10 games, going bowling, and maybe even playing in the New Year's Six Six game. But, of course, it's not something that happens overnight. We saw, of course, with USC and with Penn State, it's something that happens with time. It happens when you have to find the right coach, the right program, and in the case of Penn State and USC, the right quarterback. But is that blueprint something that other programs currently immersed in scandal can follow? So those are the things that we're going to talk about on tonight's show. Of course, before we get to that, let's go ahead and tell you guys and encourage you guys to remember that you can subscribe to my podcast. Check it out on iTunes, also on Stitcher. And your boy Denmark actually even got on Instagram. So be sure you follow me on there where, of course, also videos and things of that nature to try to help me get through these trying times. Because I don't know about you, but most college football fans, we are counting down the days, the hour, the minute, and the second. Because at this particular juncture right now, we have 185 days until week one of the college football season. However, or however, unfortunately, during that time, oftentimes we find players or coaches in trouble. And we see that, of course, it's already continued to become a pattern. We just heard news today. A recruit who signed with Texas is now being questioned for his role in some type of drug. We don't know how that situation is going to unravel. In addition to that, Mark D'Antonio from Michigan State uh, also had to release a statement talking about his players who are currently find themselves immersed in a scandal of their own, dealing with sexual assault charges, and also having to explain why his director of recruiting had to take a leave of absence. And if that wasn't bad enough, now we know that Oregon, the coach, Willie Taggart, the guy with the smile, he's already decided to take a page out of the book of our own president, Donald Trump, and refusing to talk to reporters who actually reported on the incident that took place with his players who ultimately end up getting hospitalized uh, during the offseason. And, of course, now we do know that since that was a big enough problem with Oregon, in addition to that, Willie Taggart put out a statement saying that from here on out, any incident that takes place with his coaching staff will remain private business. I guess when you go through as many coaches as he did in the span of a month, maybe just maybe that was the route to go. But instead of dwelling on those negative things, like I said, we have a guest on. Uh, they're going to talk to us about the USC Trojans. His name is Connor McClure. He actually writes for USC. And so without further ado, let's go ahead and get him on to find out what the blueprint of success is for USC and uh, find out all those all those things and more with those Trojans. How are you doing, Anthony? I'm doing Thank good. Thank you. Now, of course, absolutely. Now, of course, we do know that, man, it seems as if we're back to the glory days mm-hmm. of USC. I know, for one, me being a fellow Trojan, I'm excited, and you as well. I'm more than sure that you're excited. But I do wonder, do you find yourself approaching all the expectations that have already now been bestowed upon this program with caution. Because I don't know about you, but the first thing I immediately thought about was Christmas 2011 when Matt Barkley got on and made his announcement that USC, that he was coming back to USC, and then, of course, it was followed by 
a preseason number one, and, well, we all know how that happened. Uh, what are your thoughts about how this is going to be different? Because the talent's there, but it was there in 2011, too. Talent's definitely there. I think the biggest thing that you saw was Barkley's inability to stay healthy in 2012, so that's going to obviously play a major part in this upcoming season. And I think having an experienced coaching staff going into next season is obviously going to help. I wouldn't be so quick to jump on the bandwagon of saying that USC is back to its glory days by any means, especially when they're going to have to replace not only the big names like Adoree Jackson and Juju Smith-Schuster, but they're going to have to have three new guys playing starting roles on the offensive line, which is always going to be a major a major thing that they need to address. Obviously, it helps having an experienced guy like Toa Lobendon being able to come back in after tearing his ACL the second time. But that's those are issues that they really need to uh, kind of address. And it seems like they have the bodies to do it, but I, I wouldn't be too quick to say that they're a top-five team just yet. Absolutely. Again, I'm on the line with Connor McClendon. He writes for the Daily Trojan uh, at USC. Now, of course, you know, you did mention the, the, the gaps on the offensive line. And, of course, they did know, of course, you do know they did weigh in today for the NFL combine. And, of course, there are certain things that people say there's big and then there's Zach Banner big. Uh, <laughs> Zach Banner, of course, according to the measurements, measured out to be six foot eight, three 353 pounds so far, the largest guy there. And Mamba was not too far behind. He measured to be six foot three, three hundred and forty three pounds. And uh those two guys, in my opinion, are two of the most important players that they're gonna to have to replace. But we do know that at USC we do not replace, we do reload, and there is a talented batch of offensive weapons coming to USC this year. And I know about you, I'm excited. Where do you Absolutely. see, who do you see specifically, let's go on the offensive side of the ball, uh, wh- where do you see the replacements for these guys? Because, I mean, there may be a lot of different big guys that come out, but there's only one banner. And I think Ali Mamba is probably going to get, is going to be missed a whole lot more than people actually realize. Yeah, I I agree with that. I think Damian Mamba was kind of an unsung hero, especially on that offensive line this season. He's able to play really versatilely, and uh, as you mentioned, his his weight, he's a big guy to have there at guard, so losing him to the draft is going to be big, and I think any NFL team that picks him up is going to be a lucky a lucky squad, especially after seeing his numbers. I, I think a lot of people were surprised at his arm, arm length. 35 inches is pretty impressive for a guard in the league, so I think he's going to be able to move up in the draft stock in that sense. But back to USC's offensive line, I think that they have some guys that are ready to fill in right away. Obviously, having Lobendon back with Nico Fala having the experience at center allows him to return to his more natural position of being a guard. They have other guys that are stepping right in uh, after signing their commitment letters this year that could pose to be big threats on the offensive line. Elijah Vera Tucker coming out of Bishop O'Dowd, he's going to be an obvious uh, quick position to just make a make an impact right away. Chuma Doga, we saw him get a lot of time, especially in there for 
whether it's Chad Wheeler or Zach Banner over at the tackles, he has an opportunity to slide down into a guard position or continue out on the edge. So they have options out there. It's just whether or not they're able to gel because the biggest thing about playing on the offensive line is communication, and that's always going to be a major part. So being able to replace three guys and expect them to gel within one, two, three games of the season is pretty unrealistic. So if you're able to incorporate new guys or even guys who are on the team, Chris Brown, for example, he got some playing time to be able to incorporate these guys into a locker room and into a position group and be able to see them morph together, it'll be a really pivotal role to see how well they can talk, recognize blitzes, make sure that they have their pocket protection right to protect Sam Darnold, who will be the key to see a USC run. Absolutely. Now, of course, we do know it definitely would have been great if T. Martin was, would have been able to sign his son, T. Higgins, who will ultimately end up signing with Clemson. But nevertheless, I mean, T. Martin definitely did a remarkable job uh, this past season. I, for one, when I, I told people, I said, listen, T. Martin is going to be the next coach at Tennessee. People laugh. But I think when you look at the firepower that USC has already in tow and what he's done so far on the recruiting trail, I mean, tell my listeners a little about some of these weapons who are going to fill in uh, who are going to be coming to Tro- who are going to be coming to USC uh, this year, specifically the freshmen, who are going to uh, fill in for Adore Jackson and Juju Smith. Well, USC has a plethora of highly talented freshmen being able to come in through this class. It was no mistake that they were a top five recruiting class across the board. And not only does T. Martin deserve the acknowledgement there, but also guys like linebacker coach Johnny Nansen and recruiting coordinator and high school coordinator Gavin Morris. These guys were out on the trail hard being able to steal some of the uh, local guys and guys from across the country. So aside from a lot of the talent that has been on the USC roster that didn't get chances to shine because of Smith-Schuster's presence and Darius Rogers, they have guys like Randall Grimes being able to come out uh, who is a four- or five-star receiver from Vegas. They have the local guys that are also going to be an absolute monster. I love watching him play in Jalen Hall, or Joseph Lewis, excuse me. Jalen Hall is the other guy coming out of Hawkins. And uh, so there, you have those guys playing receiver. Then you have the five-star Stephen Carr, who's been committed to USC for years on years, to be able to – compliment Ronald Jones back there as another two-headed monster after you leave Justin Davis, that's a scary sight that no offense is going to want to see. And then in the secondary, you have other guys that are ready to rotate right in there for Dory Jackson. Bubba Bolden has made an absolute statement coming out of Bishop Gorman. Uh, You saw his amazing play in the Under Armour All-American game where he leapfrogged the center on a field goal attempt and blocked it before anyone was even out of their stance. So he has freak athleticism. And you're just seeing this talent come from top to bottom out of this recruiting class. Isaiah Palomau, another guy who can make an impact right away in the secondary. Absolutely. Of course, you know, one of the things that's been the calling card for USC for years is their ability to be able to attract quarterbacks. And even though Sam Darnold initially came to USC as I don't, I mean, no disrespect by this, as the other quarterback, because everybody thought that 
Ricky Towns was going to be the guy. And, of course, everybody thought Max Brown was going to be the guy. And Sam Darnold just emerged from the shadows. People initially did not even think that he was going to go to USC. And when he decided to go to USC, several people had scratched their heads and had questions about it. Uh, but nevertheless, this past season, this guy definitely acquired uh, a lot of doubters. And according to reports, this guy's buzz is so big that they're even talking about him in the NFL combine right now. Right. Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, Darnold was not a highly touted recruit coming out of high school, which obviously shows that even with a top-five class, that doesn't mean that you're going to get all stars. There's going to be guys who are the three stars, the two stars, not even the ranked guys, the walk-ons that are able to make an impact. And Sam Darnold opens up that trail that you don't need to be the go-to guy in high school or the, the guy that everyone is sought after. I mean, Ricky Town, you mentioned it. He was the guy coming into USC in that class. Now he's moving on to his third school already. And, I mean, Jack Sears is a quarterback who early enrolled uh, to USC this year coming out of San Clemente who also was obviously the host of Sam Darnold for his high school years. So there's that connection. It allows Sears, who was one of the top two quarterbacks in his class, to learn under Darnold, develop, and be ready to make a uh, run for the job if Darnold continues to gather the attention of the scouts at the Combine next year like he is this year. Absolutely. Now, of course, you know, I opened the show and I talked about the importance of the Rose Bowl matchup with USC and Penn State. And what I actually mentioned in that conversation is I said that, I mean, not only was it a great game, but it was definitely a monumental accomplishment for both of these programs, who, of course, initially prior to that game, I mean, they were minor scandals. Of course, you know, with the Reggie Bush issue, which decimated death, and also, of course, with the issue with Penn State with Sandusky, which also decimated death. Now, when you look around the country and you see the current landscape of things going on in Ole Miss and Baylor, do you think that those programs could be able to duplicate the same blueprint that Penn State and USC used to find themselves back in the national championship conversation? Well, I think what we saw from USC and Penn State both is that it takes time to come back from something like that. It's not something that you can expect a program to take these large hits and then next year be ready to make a run for the national title. To be able to see both of those schools come out and fight from where they were, not having the full 85 scholarships and yet still make it to a New Year's Six Bowl, let alone the Rose Bowl, that's a feat that can't go unnoticed. And I think Baylor still has the attraction that, most people enjoy. They're they're not going to have Art Bryles at the helm, so things might get a little bit switched up. They might not run as much of a spread offense as they've been known to run where they saw success dating back to RG3, but they're still going to be able to attract talent. It just it, It's going to take them a few years, and if they're able to follow the same blueprint, as you mentioned, that both USC and Penn State laid out for them, where What it really takes is a strong coaching staff, a team that really understands values and is committed to one type of way, one type of philosophy, and just making a better team rather than being a group of individuals that just happen to play together and wear the same jersey color. I think they'll have a chance to make another run a little bit down the line. 
Absolutely. Of course, again, I'm on the line with Connor McClendon. He writes for the USC Trojans. Now, I do want to ask your thoughts on two stories. First story is there was a story, of course, that broke there. Of course, we do know that now with USC, you never have enough quarterbacks, and they already have the top quarterback in the country committed. His name is Matt Corral. He, of course, strangely transferred to uh, Long Beach Poly, which, of course, is a, a great California powerhouse, but he transferred under a unique situation uh, that took place with this guy by the name of Gretzky. Can you tell my listeners about this incident that took place and uh, tell my listeners also a little bit about what they can expect from uh, Matt Corral when he does, in fact, uh, don uh, the Trojans. Jersey. I haven't been able to I haven't been able to talk to Matt in a little while now, so I don't know exactly all the the things that happened back doors on that one. But for him to be able to leave a school like Oaks Christian, where he had a lot of success, and go to as you mentioned, a perennial powerhouse of Long Beach Poly, it, it it's not something that's completely abnormal. You see guys, especially when they are one of the highly touted players in the country. They're able to move around based on their high school uh, prominence, I guess you can call it. And being able to see Matt Corral, this kid is going to be a stud. He has everything that you want to see, especially coming out of a high school quarterback. He, He has the makings of a big arm. He's able to move around the pocket. And he has the wherewithal to obviously be able to avoid rushers and make big plays when nothing seems to happen. And these are all the same traits that you kind of heard about Sam Darnold when he was at San Clemente. So being able to see that a couple years down the line, it, it it's a good path and good thing for USC fans to hope for, being able to see Darnold, a young guy who has been succeeding, Jack Sears, a guy who has just enrolled and has a couple years to develop, and you'll see him succeed once Darnold ends up going to the draft, and then Matt Corral a couple years further down the line. USC stocked a quarterback for the next few years. Absolutely, of course. There's never, ever been a shortage of talent at the quarterback position at USC, even during all the issues that took place during the Bush scandal. But my last question. Now, of course, we do know that everybody would like to have an island. Of course, <laughs> Adidas' latest promotion, it says that if, in fact, you're able to beat the blazing 424 that was run by Chris Johnson, you can have an island. And uh, one of the guys who being mentioned prominently as a guy who may have the speed to acquire an island, you know, a guy who nearly made it to the Olympics. Of course, I'm talking about Adore Jackson. Uh, tell my listeners in regards to uh, what are your expectations for him in the NFL combine, and uh, do you think that he is actually capable of getting that island? I think out of the eight guys that USC sent to the combine, I think Jackson obviously has the best chance. He he's No one will ever dispute his freak athletic ability. He's a highly talented defensive back, and he, he is lightning quick. That said, I, I don't see him beating the 4.24. I could see him in the low 4.3s. If he's lucky, get around the 4.29 range, which would be – Absolutely outstanding for his draft status. Uh, I do know specifically for that promotion, uh, you need to be wearing Adidas. And Adore's always been a Nike guy, so I don't know how that's going to play into his role. But uh, I'm interested to see it. I love the idea. 
of the promotion. And I think Adori out of anyone is also going to be somebody that loves that idea. And I wouldn't be, wouldn't be completely blown away. I'm not ruling it out of the realm of possibilities that he breaks that 424, but I definitely don't see it likely that he gets below a 4.26. Absolutely. Of course, it seems like literally night and day. I remember the last time I had you on the show, we were talking about the job security of the coach. and We we know that is now completely uh, a a non-issue anymore. I want to thank you We've for coming a long on to way. the show. I know, absolutely. I want to thank you for coming on to the show. And I definitely I want to have you on throughout the off season as we grow that much closer, 185 days until kickoff. Thank you so much. Fantastic. Thanks a lot, Anthony. Spring ball starts on Tuesday, so I'll be excited to see what happens there. Absolutely. Fight on. Now, of course, one of the things that's awesome, again, I want to thank Connor McClinn for coming on to the show. One of the things that's so awesome is the seeing programs do things the right way. And I think ultimately what signaled the transition for USC is they found the right coach. You've got to find the right guy. And a lot of times it may not be the guy who's the most glamorous. It may not be the guy who, of course, will wow you. It may not even be a guy who, of course, embodies everything that that program is supposed to stand for. Because when we think about USC, we think about glitz and glamour. We think about Matt Liner with the sunglasses on. We think about Wayne Kiffin. We think about the California Kids program reemerged from the shadows of a candle. It was a blue-collar coach who probably, even in spite of the success of his program, probably can walk anywhere in California and is likely to be unrecognizable. It was this guy, the guy who, of course, many people questioned when he was hired, many people who wondered if maybe they had gotten it all wrong. And especially after the slow start, the jury was already out. People were already thinking about Chip Kelly to USC and, I have to admit, I was one of those guys. But nevertheless, one of the most important qualities necessary for you to reemerge from a scandal is finding the right leader. Sark wasn't the right leader. Lane Kiffin was not the right leader. But you know what? The guy that's currently in tow, he seems like he's going to be the guy for the job. And unlike all those other glamorous, former SEX coaches, I think it's reasonable to expect that he's going to be there for the long haul. But nevertheless, you know, we're going to see what happens. Now, of course, USC finds finds itself back in familiar territory. It finds itself now in a situation where there are actually expectations. There's going to be an expectation of them not just being able to beat UCLA and Oregon, but now an expectation that they're going to beat Washington every year and go to the Rose Bowl. And it's now after their performance in the Rose Bowl, the expectation is that next year will be the year that they contend for a national championship and take its rightful place amongst the nation's elite. But again, as I say in life, as I say in sports, we're definitely going to see what's happening. And, of course, of course, 
we're definitely going to see what's up. Now, of course, you know, like I questioned uh, Connor about, is oftentimes we think that it's so easy for you to be able to win games. And we think it's so easy for you to just recruit the right players and just automatically, because you have collected a certain amount of five-star, four-star talent, that it is going to immediately yield dividends on the field. And one of the biggest lessons that we learned in the case of USC, which has never had a problem recruiting five stars, but it's about the value of having all 85 scholarship players on your roster in order to be able to build depth, actually practice, (laughs) which, of course, is probably one of the most critical components in being able to field not just a competitive team, but a team that will be successful throughout the season. As, of course, we saw in the case of both USC and also in the case of Penn State, when they did not have their full allotment of scholarships, that was a problem. And near the end of the season, they were playing walk-ons, and they were limping to the finish line which, of course, was not the end or the out, which ultimately led to them not getting the outcomes that their fan base, that the players, or heck, even the coaches, truly desired. But I wanted to I wanted to talk specifically about can Baylor duplicate this? Now, of course, in the case of Baylor, we do know that they did sign the coach, Matt Rule, so in a long contract, I believe it was a 10-year contract. So that contract, for me anyway, signals a lot. It signals the reality and acceptance of the reality that it's going to take a long time for this program to find itself back in the top five, back in title contention talk, and at least at that particular point. That is something that's quite possible. Because unlike USB, they didn't give Sark, they didn't give Lane an extensive contract, completely unaware of how difficult it was going to be for the program to get out of its own tangled web of scandal. But I think in all earnest, I truly believe, and I'm more than sure that you would wonder this too, Although Matt Rule took a job in the Power Five conference, although Matt Rule got a substantial raise, he's now making nearly $4.5 million a year, you have to truly ask yourself this question. Rule got buyer's remorse. Because there does come a point in time in your life when you've now collected enough money, your kids are set, the savings are set, you have all your bills and credit cards set on automatic automatic payment, and there's no worries in the world. So when you reach that point in your life, when you're no longer worried about money, you find yourself concerned primarily with the quality of life. Ask yourself, in light of yet another scandal in Baylor, it seems as if every day another scandal reveals itself. When Baylor had to suspend his defensive back, Trevon Blanchard, after he had some incidences of what? Assault with his girlfriend. 
or when the tone-deaf women's basketball coach said that she would punch or encourage people to punch doubters in the face who had questions or concerns about the state of the Baylor program. All these things that continue to reveal themselves as the Texas Rangers have opened up an investigation in which they're going to look deeper into the Baylor scandal to see if things were done right. You say to yourself, Matt Rule has to be wondering, has to be wondering, damn, man, did I make the right decision? Did I align myself with the wrong program? Because we do know that in the case of Matt Rule, really? He should have stayed at Temple forever. And after putting out one 10-win season after the other, I'm more than sure that Matt Rule could have got other opportunities. Just think, Matt Rule could have waited. Could have got the Arkansas job. He could have got the Texas A&M job. And in Hall of Hindsight, if Matt Rule really, really, I mean, really wanted it, <laughs> I may have actually even could have gotten the LSU job last season. And I'm more than sure. We know that Matt Rule, of course, is a guy of high character. We do know that, of course, he is the son of a minister. So I'm more than sure that he operates in the, under the character of forgiveness and has high integrity. But we also know that in the Bible it does also say that patience is a virtue. And I'm more than sure that although Matt Rule is happy (laughs) or at least content at the moment at Baylor, you have to ask yourself in earnest, as this whole web of scandals continues to unravel, how long do you guys really expect Matt Rule to be there? Because if one the Big Ten had not made it to the Rose Bowl, it's very likely that Matt Rule would have happily chose the job in Happy Valley as alma mater far sooner than he would have ever considered taking a job where he's currently employed at now. But, of course, Matt Rule's here now, right? Matt Rule is here now. So we know that the Reformation Project begins. And just like in the case of Baylor, I'm sorry, just like in the case of Penn State, just like in the case of USC, we know that the transformation is something that's not going to happen overnight. The players currently on the roster at Baylor, it's going to be a filtering out process, kind of similar to what happened at Texas. And it's going to take a good two to three years for Matt Rule to be able to implement his own philosophy, to be able to recruit the players that he knows intimately, the players whose homes he's been in, the players whose families he's met and made promises to. And it's going to take a while for him to be able to develop these young men, not only as good football players, but also into high-character individuals who will be positive role models of what Baylor is supposed to stand for. But again, like I say, how long is that going to take? And then secondly, 
do you really expect Matt Rule to stay there that long? We saw in the case of Jim Grove, Jim Grove could not wait to leave Baylor. And although he left Baylor still with his pristine reputation intact, he also left with a huge reality that the issues that took place at Baylor, the issues that have taken place at Baylor, the 31 unreported assaults by football players, the issues of money possibly exchanging hands based off of the act of Art Brown's son. Jim Grove realized that this is just not the place for me. Jim Grove, of course, is now back out fishing and enjoying retirement. And I just wonder how long the patience of Matt Rule will last. It's one thing to lose, but it's also another thing to not have the trust of your administration. Now, I believe that they trust Matt Rule, but do you think Matt Rule trusts the athletic director and the board of advisors at Baylor? And if you, and if in fact he doesn't trust them, you really blame him. Because I think that Matt Rule's days in Waco are numbered, and I think that Matt Rule will not be fired, but will find himself looking at opportunities that uh, come with less baggage. But again, I mean, Matt Rule did a remarkable job in his first recruiting class, quite impressive. It seems as if he has a plan in place. He's totally embraced Texas football. And it seems as if the Texas football coaches have definitely accepted him. It's definitely going to be an intriguing story to watch. Now, of course, I continue to send my prayers out to the Baylor students who have made the brave decision to stay at the university. To the young ladies, I pray that you will not be a victim of a Baylor football player, but find yourself having a positive story to tell. Because ultimately, in the case of Baylor, the only way we're going to know that things have changed for the better is not going to be based off of the amount of wins on the field, but based off of the reduced amount of incidents reported off of it. Now, as I bring my show to a close, I'm happy to see my Trojans back where they belong. But the question still remains. Can other programs follow? Thank you guys for tuning in to Countdown to Kickoff. Remember to stay tuned to sports. I'll talk to you guys tomorrow. Peace. Thanks for tuning in to Countdown to Kickoff. Our show airs live every Tuesday and Thursday at 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If, in fact, you missed the show, make sure you subscribe to the podcast by typing in count and the number two and down, one word. While you're at it, make sure you also follow the latest happenings in the world of sport with us at Eat, Drink, Sleep, Sports, and the number two. And you know what? If you've gone that far, be sure and check out our website for the latest happenings as well at eatdrinksleepsports.com. Until next time, college sports football fans, stay tuned. I know I will. Peace.